Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohen, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. As always, we took a little week off to recover from Oscar season, but the world continues, and we have much to discuss, including what we've been up to over the past week, which has absolutely nothing to do with Oscars, nothing to do with Get Out or The Shape of Water or Three Billboards, and everything to do with Austin and Miami. So let's get into it, And What were you doing in Miami? Okay, there's a big, big uh, film festival, the Miami Film Festival. I think they were um, they were in their 30th year or something. I mean, they were they were uh, what was it? Was it the 35th? It, it, they've been doing it a long time, and they're um, run by a guy, the the festival has been run for the last eight years by a guy named Jay Laplante, who's who is a uh, an enthusiastic um, film buff who. Have books a local art house theater there called the Tower in Little Havana. There are lots of art house theaters in Miami. I mean, in fact, he has competition, and it was fun to sort of get a tour of the city, which is huge. It's way bigger than when I was there 20 years ago. The Collins Avenue Miami Beach Art Deco hotel scene is very much the same because they hang on to those those uh, facades, and so it has this great uh, kind of um, old Havana, old Miami feel to it. But but there's um, lots of new hotels. I went to this place called the Faena, F-A-E-N-A, which has this uh, Damien Hurst gold-plated mastodon and, and incredible murals from Pedro Almodovar's designer, you know, poster designer. And, you know, these it was like Las Vegas in that way. There's a real uh, kind of high-end, incredible money Las Vegas feel to it. And then you, when I get back, I, I, I read the story of the, of the pedestrian footbridge that was erected in 24 hours by some fly-by-night company and, and killed pedestrians. And it was horrifying because, you know, in Miami, it's all bridges, it's all islands, it's all causeways and water everywhere. It feels like Venice in a funny way. And you have uh, the sense of pending doom from the sea, from the rising sea that laps right up to all the roadways. And it's very beautiful. And the films were even good. So it's an Ibo-American, Spanish-flavored, uh, Latin-flavored uh, festival. And I saw something called Laws of Thermodynamics from Mateo Gil, who's from Spain, who used to be a big screenwriter for Amenabar. Um, you know, did the Sea Inside, which won the foreign language Oscar. And it, it was a cute, um, really uh, witty, uh, romantic comedy, uh, you know, up against the laws of thermodynamics as, as articulated by a bunch of scientists. And it was, it, I actually think it would make a great remake uh, if someone did it uh, for an American audience. And um, and there was a great uh, di- uh, Tom Powers, the Doc Meister uh, programs, the uh, Doc program, and there was a good movie called Liana, which was from uh, Swaziland, and it was about orphans from the AIDS crisis there who uh, got a chance to tell their story via an animated movie, and so the animation is right there in the movie. And I think that might travel. And then Jaiman Hansu had a voodoo movie, which was quite illuminating about the roots of voodoo in Africa. And 
that's a documentary as well. And he was there articulating how much voodoo has been uh, distorted by the West and how we don't understand it. It's been taken over by Hollywood. Um, and then uh, the opening night movie was Tully from Jason Reitman, which I was too late to see, but you did see. But I saw, um, I spoke to Jason uh, at the opening night thing, and uh, I'm very excited about what his next movie is going to be, which is The Front Runner, uh, which is about Gary Hart's presidential campaign, which was derailed by a scandalous love affair. And of course, he went and talked to uh, Warren Beatty for research. Hugh Jackman is playing Gary Hart, and his wife is played by well, Vera Farmiga. So we might see that in Toronto. That, that sounds promising. You didn't miss much with Tully in my estimation, although I, I think some people will get behind it. But um, it's certainly not a, a Miami-specific story either, and it sounds like you used the film festival to see movies that were really specific to being at a film festival and discovering movies. So that's a very productive use of your time. And I also, also spent a, a nice lot of time to, by uh, the pool. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's also a nice way to use your vacation in a constructive manner, but I hope you still got some normal vacation stuff in there as well. And I, I love the Florida film scene. You know, I got married at a Florida film festival in Key West and having gone down there the last few years, sometimes I get a sense for what the Miami film scene is doing, the, the Borscht Film Collective. There are some really cool art houses like the Miami Beach Cinematheque and the O Cinema. I so saw I'm not that surprised place. That was good. That you had yep. a constructive uh, time there. I was in Austin for South by Southwest. It was my 12th straight year going to that festival. And it was a big year. You know, it was the 25th anniversary of the film festival and the 10th for Janet Pearson, the head of the festival. And so there were a lot of conversations about the legacy there, not specifically tied to her own uh, work at the festival as much as the, the broader kind of uh, evolution of the film part of this much larger conference, which is quite fascinating when you think about it, because South by Southwest isn't a film festival in a traditional sense. It's a conference with technology, movies, TV, uh, music, and all this stuff happening at once. And the way in which over the last decade in change, film has sort of become one smaller piece of, the, of this pie of, of media stuff happening is uh, a good reflection of the way the industry as a whole has kind of evolved. Having said that, it was a pretty good year for, for movies at the festival of different sizes. The film that won the Grand Jury Prize was a movie called Thunder Road, directed by this, this uh, uh, fellow named Jim Cummings, based on a short that played at Sundance a few years ago. And he's made a bunch of those. So people who pay attention to shorts uh, are were already kind of fans of this guy. The feature uh, it starts where the short starts with Jim playing this kind of awful police officer, eulogizing his mother. And you go through a series of moments in his life where he is estranged from his police officer, fellow police officers, estranged from his family, trying to be a father to his young daughter. And what's interesting about it is that if you had this played for broad comedy, like a Keystone Cop sort of a thing, it would be a very different kind of a movie. It's actually trying to be more of a sophisticated kind of a drama about this guy working through different moments in his life that is also kind of a dark comedy. And so it has a very complex tone. And what's neat about it is that it's not a movie that's going to be a big deal necessarily, but it is the kind of thing that like Cretia when it won South by Southwest or Tiny Furniture when it won South by Southwest is sort of introducing a new filmmaker voice in a way that could sort of lay the groundwork for whatever that person does next. So that was a nice discovery. So I have to say there were three studio movies that played 
over the course of the weekend in studios like bringing certain kinds of movies to South by Southwest, movies that are maybe a little bit edgy, that lean into genre, that could use that kind of mostly younger kind of hip demo to, to create a strong foundation of word of mouth. All of them were pretty good. Uh, the, the opening night film, A Quiet Place, which you would never believe was directed by John Krasinski because it's a, a horror movie, a dystopian horror movie, basically, which is nothing like The Hollers or Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. It's, it's a really cool kind of cinematic experiment because it's basically this futuristic story where these monsters have destroyed society and the only way to evade detection is sound. They, as soon as you make a loud noise, these things come at you. So Krasinski and... Um, he plays this, this sort of father of, of a household and, and his real life wife, Emily Blunt, is, is the wife. And uh, their daughter is Melissa, is played by Millicent Simmons, who people know as the uh, girl in uh, Wonderstruck. So this is her second role after that. And great, great opportunity for a deaf actress because there's almost no dialogue. And a lot of it is sign language. And so what's kind of cool about it is that even though ultimately this becomes a monster movie with a lot of jump scares and things like that, it happens through uh, a lot of visual driven, visually driven suspense. So it's one of those things where I think people who are really drawn to the like experiments with the language of cinema will get something out of it. But if you want just a wild, fun genre experience, it's got that too. So yeah, then you we make go me want to see that one. Actually, you should do. I think I think it could do well. It opens April sixth, and then the film the, the the next day also opens April sixth, and it's sort of the ultimate counter program because it's got this. Uh, female-centric uh, sex comedy element. You know, they launched Bridesmaids there. They launched Trainwreck there. Now we come around to Blockers, which is the directorial debut of Kay Cannon, and it's a it's a lot of fun. It's sort of a uh, you know feminized super bad, if you will, in the sense that it all takes place over the course of one night. But it's a bunch of teenage girls, and it focuses more on their parents, played by Leslie Mann, Ike Barinholtz, and John Cena, who they they find out because their kids' text messages come into to one of their laptops that, when, that, that all three of their daughters have made a pact to lose their virginity on prom night. And, of course, they freak out with this information and chase their kids over the course of the night to try to keep them from losing their virginity. So this is, you know, well-worn territory. Ever since there. <laughs> still, it, it works. I mean, I, I've said this a few times already, but I could have used some subtitles because there was so much laughter in the Paramount that you couldn't, hear a lot of what they were saying but but that's it, a good it, sign uh, yeah leslie mann is really really great in particular it's it's just it's one of those movies where you know you've been through some of this before but it but it works quite well so i expect that like neighbors that launch at the festival to really build build a, a strong launch pad out of the reception it got there and yet it still wasn't the big hit of the weekend that would have to be the tba of the paramount on sunday night which by the time we got to that slot what we knew was steven spielberg's ready player one now fortunately you've seen this movie too so we can actually talk about it in advance of its opening what was i think really cool about ready player one seeing it in a festival context was how much people assumed this movie was going to be bad and i was holding out hopes because one i read the source material i didn't think it was great writing but it had this really terrific futuristic premise the use of vr and all that stuff and steven spielberg is a great commercial director the the premise of the movie is an homage to 80s storytelling, and it really does deliver. In this screening, the sound went out twice. 
they kept going back to this one moment where there's a big explosion in a battle scene and the audience didn't walk out. This was 90 minutes into the movie or thereabouts because they were so into it. It's, it's really just such it's a, a very immersive movie. Yeah. It, I really enjoyed it. And I, it's one of the, it, forgive me for comparing it to Blade Runner 2049, but it's one of those movies where you're so, um, alert and focused because there's so much going on and you need to pay attention and you need to keep track of it. And yet the actors who are carrying you, he cast it really, really well. Tyler Sheridan, who you may remember from Mud, and um, the uh, Olivia Cook, who you may remember from Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, are superb both as and and you meet her for the first time in her avatar guys and that's the other thing that could have been done so badly and by the way as good as Spielberg is with visual effects I would like to suggest that he has learned so much over the past decades in, with with AI or with um, Tintin or with um, uh, the BFG some of which you know, didn't work altogether. And he loves Kubrick. Kubrick is a huge factor. Uh, the Shining is a huge factor in this. But um, because he's making references, he's making all sorts of references all throughout. But it isn't that. It's I want to say that the avatars and the visual oasis um, execution are so good. Uh, and he doesn't well, throw you out. Because, no, because but, uh, but it's also sort of, it's a unique context because it's, this futuristic world called the Oasis where everybody wears these VR headsets and just wander around as avatars. So it doesn't have to look totally real. It no, just has to look. But personal. it shouldn't throw I mean, it does you have out. A video right. right. It it's consistent be... in the world. Yeah. There's even a, bar, a Jar Jar Binks step... reference in it. Did you see that? Oh, yeah. it's, overlo <laughs> it's overloaded with stuff. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to compare with the references in the book because they couldn't get the rights to everything. But of course, Spielberg can get you know, Back to the Future in there or his T-Rex from Jurassic Park and things like that. It is weird to see a guy like this make such a heavily stylized work, but it is, it's also driven by a pretty engaging narrative. I mean, it's, it, it is definitely over long. I would say it's got some, it's got some issues, but um, Lena Waithe is also really She's good in it, in it as charming. Sheridan's friend. I also, and you got to give a shout out to, to, to Mark Rylance, who's burying his British accent as this dopey, uh, 80s geek who designed like, the whole world and oh, wearing this wonderful. wig the whole time. And he's and totally <laughs> it's engaging. I mean, he's great. Just the way the pants fall on him. It's, it's hilarious. And then there's this one, and there's a mystery to solve, and there's a race, and there are all these elements that keep you on the edge of your, of your seat, but there's also a, a villain. And I have to say, Ben Mendelsohn, this could have been the worst cardboard villain you've ever seen. And what he does with this guy, the guy who wants to take over Oasis, the guy who's the corporate uh, apparatchik, you know, the absolute horrifying uh, version of, of everything we hate. He, he, he makes him stupid in this brilliant way that made it make Well, there's an amazing him. scene that uh, involves John Hughes trivia and basically like a corporate guy trying to fake his legitimate his cred, abandon. his cred. It's really funny. I mean, it, it, <laughs> but it's that's funny. how stupid it's, he is. You know, that's what I loved about yeah, it. Yeah, but it, it's, it's sort of, some people were pointing out the irony here, which is like, here's this big corporate product, you know, a, a blockbuster movie that's also kind of self-aware in the sense that it's about the manipulative nature of this storytelling, like you have people on top, like money people 
who just want to exploit people's enthusiasm for it. And then you have somebody else who has a very sincere relationship to the end result. And, you know, seeing it at Sundance, I thought really brought that to light. You know, you, you mean there South is this by, kind of South double-edged by. story. Right. South, right. South by, but yeah, one, but one thing that I think I, I think is going on here is that Spielberg himself. I mean, this is a Spielberg movie. There is sincerity to it. Forgive me here. I'm not saying it's it's an actual um, version of it, but there's an element of "It's a Wonderful Life," the the kind of Capricorn. Uh, you know, this is humanity. This is reality. This is who we are. This is what loving people means and touching people and having skin against skin as opposed to, you know, corporate horrifying, um, um, you know, he, he, in a weird way, as much as he celebrates the Oasis and, and doesn't d d deny that it has its power, he's, he's making a case for, for, and he has his own children to learn from. So you can assume well, Spielberg that Spielberg is said, coming from I mean, an older place and a younger place at the same time. Well, it's, that is what's fascinating. You have this, this 70 year old guy making a movie that is both playing off of, uh, the awareness of a generation that he had an impact on and, uh, the technology that is just coming together around us right now for a different generation. I mean, what you don't see in the movie is a lot of social media. You don't see things that really feel like this is a movie that was made sort of in tune with, you know, people who are 18 to 21 right now, but yeah. it is sort of yeah, consolidating. Was, right, right. No, it's fascinating because there was one discordant thing. I was, I was taken aback for a moment when I realized that the kid – in the real world, had collected newspaper headlines and and uh, front pages of, of yep. print media, and I thought, whoa, yep. this is set in the future. There wouldn't be any print media, right? But I think that's what sort of so it, so it's a movie that is sort of at, at once sort of playing as if it was somebody from the '80s vision of the future, and also something that could only be made right now, in which that earlier period, you know, becomes a sort of nostalgic foundation for understanding the future, you know, by playing off of any, everything from the Iron Giant to Back to the Future, you have to, ha you have to have some distance for that, for those reference points to have some value in the world that they're creating. But it also is not the most credible vision of the future. In fact, Minority Report is a much more reasonable kind of uh, look at where things might be headed in certain kinds of ways. But this one is, is, is more upbeat. It's more idealistic. And so he was it's kind control. of interesting to see him come around to that. Right. I mean, one of the things that you have in a, in a, in a movie like this is, is, you know, someone like John Favreau. Um, I mean, there's certain directors, uh, someone like Ridley Scott. They know how to control all the visual effects elements. And Spielberg does, too. And he does so in this case. He, he, went, he went wrong with the BFG in a, in, in a profound way that I still don't understand in terms of how he realized the visual effects in that movie. And, and this time he was in complete control of it and, and managed to make every element of it uh, believable and, 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 and in, of a piece. You could take a movie like A Wrinkle in Time, for example, where there's a, you know, um, Ava DuVernay is very good with the actors and the story moves along, but then you get to these extraordinary visual um, uh, environments and she wasn't able to make it coherent and, and it had to do with her not being a savant in terms of how to manipulate these visual elements all right so the oscars are behind us but it, it does bet it, it is worth 
looking into this. So last year, Baby Driver premiered at South by Southwest. It ended up having a very good summer. It got some strong technical nominations from the Oscars. You look at this movie from at least on the technical level, it would it would seem like this is sort of a lock for visual effects, at least until we see other stuff. Right. I would say absolutely. Are you kidding me? I mean, there's no question. Um, I think we have Black Panther already, and and now we have Ready Player One. Certainly on the technical side, for for sure. Any number of things, and maybe maybe Ben Mendelsohn gets supporting after uh, actor after after right. having been denied well, what he should have had for uh, Darkest Hour. I mean, that could be fun. I think it's. It's really going to come down to, on some level, and best director well too. It does. has to do well at the I box mean, office, by the way. Yeah. Well, and, and, when, and that means not Blade Runner well, which if you right, think about right. it, Blade Runner made She's good numbers, well but it lost money well, because it cost so much. Yeah, it was seen. Right. Yeah, the narrative of Blade Runner, at least in its immediate aftermath, was that it didn't work at all. But I think what's interesting, if you compare this to last year, Baby Driver launched at South by. It didn't come out until months later. Ray Player One is opening in a couple of days and was not tracking particularly well, you have to assume that's that the why they went to South by. South by. They went to South they by did. because they were worried and they needed to get a bump. And they got one, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question that that worked to the extent that it did, but it also it's a small window of time to get a bump on a big movie like this. So and and I and while you liked it and I liked it and the South by crowd liked it, I I am sort of wondering how that translates on, on a larger scale. I think they're scale, worried about a Blade Runner thing, which is, you know, sometimes a movie mm -hmm. can be a little too smart for the room. But I, I have to say word of mouth is going to be key here. It's a question of all those people that were at South By, all the viral stuff that played, all the stuff that went out on Twitter and, and all social media. It, it will have an effect. That's, that's the world we live in now. Right. It's, it's funny also. The other thing about Blade Runner that it teaches you at the, at the end of the day is, as much as you might think that the things that you liked growing up are inherently commercial, they lose their viability as time goes on. Unless you're talking about Star Wars, you know, it's like the assumption that the Blade Runner brand still had some currency today was was sort of misguided. And if you look and at and it wasn't even Ready commercial when it opened it in the first place. Film noir is not inherently commercial, and visual panache is not necessarily commercial. And it was too slow for people. But in this case, this is not too slow. This is I don't think I don't think this is too smart because you're hanging on to the characters and you're moving with them and you're engaged with them. That's what carries a story and that's what I think yeah. this movie does. Well, I don't think the exactly. 80s references they, they were enhancing yeah, they in Guardians of the Galaxy, weren't they? Yeah, but I mean in this particular case it, they are a story point, but they they can't sell the movie on the basis of no, that. Not to the No, and they country. shouldn't. And I'm I'm a little concerned about challenge. the marketing. I have to tell you, I don't think they're marketing this effectively at all. Well, we shall see. Next week when we reconvene, we'll have an opportunity to take a look at whether or not those numbers have really gone up. We'll have a chance to uh talk to more people who are working on these things and uh, we'll be looking to head to other other stuff that's right around the corner that we're excited about the Cannes Film Festival lineup Tribeca new directors new films all kinds of stuff uh, I have to tell you Anne because the Oscars were later this year it was no easy task doing awards weekend and South by back to back so I am very glad to have those two things behind us and, and looking forward to resting up a little bit as I'm sure you are as well talk to you later Eric have a good weekend you too